6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapters 5 and 6. And servants here are slaves. It basically applies to employment. 50% of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. That's why Constantine found it so shrewd to make Christianity a, uh, a legal involvement. It didn't make it a state religion. The second successor after he did that. But he did make it, he did legalize it. That allowed, because over half the slaves were Christians. That was a big chunk of the demographics. And many of these slaves were educated, cultured, but they weren't treated as persons was where the abuse is involved. Now, the, our new freedom in Christ should not be used as an excuse to disobey, defy, or, de, or defy authority. In fact, it's the other way around, by the way. If you're an employee, just an, a rank, an hourly employee of, of an employer, you owe that employer 60 minutes for every hour paid, right? If you are a manager of that enterprise, you owe the boss a fiduciary relationship. You, you have a commitment to protect the business, its assets, its intellectual property, all those kinds of things. If you're an hourly, you don't have those obligations. You just, you just owe him 60 minutes for every hour paid, unless you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, Ephesians 6 talks about the fact that you are to be a fiduciary, a koinonos of that employer. So an average employee doesn't, owes, what he owes the boss is a, limited, is a limited package. If you're a Christian, you owe the boss your wholehearted support. That's more than a non-believer requires, is required. So your new, your freedom in Christ should not only be, should not be an excuse to disobey or defy authority. Quite the contrary, it encumbers you with a fiduciary relationship to your employer. And you need to research that and understand what that means. Let's go on. Verse 2. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If you've got a believing master, you don't, you don't take advantage of them. You get just that much better deal, right? So it's interesting that nowhere in the New Testament that I'm aware of do they speak out against the institutional aspects of slavery, per se. That would have been disruptive and would have hindered the gospel. Now, that's interesting. There's a very, very prominent minister, had a fantastic ministry, coast to coast, that also was a tax protester. And we tried to tell him as friends, he's wasting his time. It's not that he's right or wrong. That's not the issue. You want to pick your battles. He chose to not pay his taxes, and he's now 10 years in prison, and his ministry is in jeopardy because he didn't pay his taxes. If you study, the, remember the incident where they came to Christ because there was a tax due? And he asked Peter, he says, who is, the, is it due? Is it the residents or the strangers? It's the strangers. Well, they're not the residents. 
He says, nevertheless, go get a fish and get the coin and pay the tax anyway. Everybody knows the story of the coin and the fish. Read it carefully. They're paying a tax they didn't have to. Why? Keep the peace. Who's smart? Why get in the hassle? Get him a coin. Give him a coin that's over with. If my friend, who's presently in prison, had paid his taxes, his very unique outreach in the area of creation and, and, and anti-evolution and all that sort of thing uh, was phenomenal. And yet he's now in prison. Important. One must be careful in picking your battles. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine of which is according to guidance, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, wherewith cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, and other things. There are issues that are important. There are also issues that are just divisive, unnecessarily unproductive. Constantly monitor what is being taught. And always monitor the fruit that it produces. Pride is often the badge of a false teacher. There are people on their radio. If I ask you, who would you feel has earned the title of Mr. Arrogance? And probably most of you can think of a name that speaks mountains just in and of itself. The lack of humility. The guy that has the answer for everybody. Be careful. Pride is often the badge of a false teacher. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. From such withdraw thyself. I have declined to enter into any debates with those types. Men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, that suppose that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. Recognize the attacks of the enemy. What am I talking about? Remember the Jesus, the, 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 you hear the, the Jesus seminar heretics? Guys with fancy degrees that have absolutely no conception of who Christ Jesus is. Boy. Pulpits who fail to herald the atonement. All kinds of prominent pulpits in America, coast to coast from which you will not hear about the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the cross, that he's our savior, from sin, the, the, the whole uh, ransom from sin and all that. Who is the God of this world? We shouldn't be surprised as we look out in the world and see this kind of behavior. What do these attacks include? Remember the last temptation of Christ in 1960? Hugh Schoenfield's book, The Passover Plot, big deal in 1966. Peter Jennings' TV special never tells you that his wife's a Muslim. History Channel banned books of the Bible. Utter nonsense. Rubbish. Poorly researched. And of course, the Jesus, the Jesus Seminar, they vote on what Jesus said. They take votes to decide what Jesus said. In other words, subjective speculations instead of serious scholarship. Dan Brown is Da Vinci Code. Direct, de deliberate attack on the church. And National Geographic exploiting that with their publication of the Gospel of Judas. Something that was old news back in 81, discredited in the first century. 
waltzed out by National Geographic in concert with the whole Da Vinci Code thing to, to, to lunch off the, 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 the buzz about all that stuff. Even when you take something like Mel Gibson's passion, which in many ways is a commendable effort, even he fails to identify who Jesus really is. He also creates the impression that the crucifixion was a tragedy. No, it was an achievement planned before the foundation of the world. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's in contrast to all the foregoing. And contentment here means the inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. That's a mouthful. Think about it. An inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. When everybody, anybody starts telling you about, well, under the circumstances, you stop and right there and say, what are you doing under them? <laughs> it is the wealthy people, not the poor, that go to the psychiatrists and who are more apt to commit suicide. Think about that. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. That's not quite correct. You can take it with you. Did you know that? They say you can't take it with you. Yes, you can. The secret is you send it on ahead. You see? You can't carry it out. You send it on ahead. How much did so-and-so leave? You hear someone passed away, some rich person passed away. How much did he leave? You know what the answer is? Nothing. Or he left everything, actually. How much did he leave? All of it. <laughs> Whatever it was. What did he leave? All of it. Everything. Didn't take anything with him. Interesting. Think about it. He could have sent it on ahead. We'll talk about that before this session is over. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith be content. That reminds you of the Quaker invitation. If ever thou dost need anything, come to see me and I will tell thee how to get along without it. <laughs> that's great. I like that. I think that's pretty cool. Henry David Thoreau reminded us, remember Walden's Pond? That a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Afford to do without. I had a strange incident occur. I was walking in a big computer conference. I was walking down the aisle, and a prominent uh, financier in Orange County was, and his partner was coming up the other way. He said, there's Chuck Missler. There's the guy that saved my life. I looked at him. What's he talking about? I had no idea, no idea what he's talking about. And he reminded me of a conversation that I had forgotten about. We were having lunch. He and his partner had taken me to lunch when we were back in the swing in those days, trying to put some big proposal, some, some, something they were trying to get, get me involved in. And I stopped him. I said, stop, let's stop on that right there. These two guys were partners for years. They were no well-known. And they were at each other during this lunch. I said, wait a minute. What are you guys doing? And I turned to the one guy, the key guy. I said, uh, let me paint a picture for you. It's going to be probably less than a year away. It's a darkened room. It's eternal. It's it's a it's a intensive care unit. There's an oscilloscope in the corner beeping, and you're on it. You're heading for that. He looked to be startled. Then he leveled with me. Yeah, he, he, he all kinds of pressures were on him. He started to you know he we stopped talking about the business thing. He just started telling you know he really was under intense pressure. I said very simple. What you've got to do to make a list of all the things you're involved in, and pick the one the biggest one you've got and cancel it. He looked to me startled. 
Because, you know, they're always told, you know, prioritize and get rid of the small. I said, no, no, you got it backwards. You pick the biggest thing on your list. You don't need it. I know where you stand. You don't need it for your net worth. Get rid of it. Get out of that project. The thing that's the biggest pressure. Get out of the, take the biggest one, get rid of it. I'd forgotten that. That's what he did. He got out of some big project he was in. And uh, he attributed, attributed his life to that peculiar piece of advice. I don't know where I got it. I was just you know, having a lunch spouting off like I do. But, uh, but uh, you're wealthy in proportion to the number of things you can afford to do without. He didn't need that super project, that he, one of about five that he was in. Take the biggest one. Get rid of it. Take the pressure off. It's not worth it. Doesn't take, that's not rocket science. It's just sound advice from a close friend. Simplify your way to real contentment. One of the things we talk about in the Vortex strategy is to lower your, your uh, uh, cost of living. Well, how do you do that? You make a budget of your time. Figure out where you spend your time. Then figure out the capital investment that corresponds to that time allocation. Many of us have a boat or an RV or something that we use once or twice a year that's worth, that could simplify our lives to get that out of here. Rent it when you need it. Simplify. And do it by looking at where you spend your time and get rid of the baggage you don't really need. Simplify. Verse 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Indeed. Indeed. Now, that's not just Orange County, California, by the way. That goes everywhere. Okay. You know, another great tragedy, it's amazing how many people cross the finish line as winner and discover they really had entered the wrong race. People that spend 10, 20, 30 years climbing the corporate ladder to get on top, chairman of the board, and suddenly realize what it cost them. Maybe more than one marriage, whatever. I often think about that when I see a ballerina. Incredible, exquisite performances of the dance until you realize what it cost that person from the age of three on, whatever, a whole life, you know. You see virtuosos in various fields of, of endeavor. Very impressive and yet scary when you think of what it costs them. I even feel that way when I see some of the Hollywood stars. They produce some real blockbuster movie. And it's really big news. Made a lot of money. They spent not just a year, maybe two or three years preparing for that role, pouring themselves into it to deliver the performance that's worth five or ten million dollars, whatever. And it's over. And that project, it's a project, not a career, it's a project. It's over. And, I, and then you look at some of them that have done that for years. Why? What for? Spending all their life pretending to be somebody else? And maybe some of them so intensively pretending to be somebody else so often appear to lose the capability of intimacy and commitment. Then he wonder that their marriages are like a revolving door. They're excelling in their chosen career field. But boy, what a cost. Count the cost. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of money. Big difference. Understand the difference. 
The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Boy, money is not an evil in itself. It is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. A bullet and a gun is neither good or bad. It's a bullet and a gun. It is the love, that is the obsession, the pursuit of money that is a root of all evil. Not the, by the way. Small point, but nevertheless. It may be all right to have what money can buy if you do not lose what money cannot buy. I like the way Jim Elliott puts it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Boy, that says a lot. No fool that gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Greed is where, where your treasure is, there's your, your heart is also. The difference between a hireling and a true shepherd. For years, Walter Martin used to threaten. He was going to write a book about Christian publishers. He knew where all the bodies were buried over his many, many years. He, had, he never did get around to writing the book, but he used to talk about the title very often. He was going to call the book The Hirelings of Christian, you know, Christian publishing. Wealth itself is not a sin. Abraham, Job, and Solomon were all extremely wealthy, wealthy beyond our imagining. That's not a sin. Money can be a gift of God. Believers should be willing to part with their money when God requires, indeed. Because he, he, it's really his in the first place that we're simply stewards. Money love. Money love ignores true gain, focuses on the temporal rather than the eternal, obscures the simplicity of life. These are all from verse 6, 7, 8 of 1 uh, yeah, Timothy uh, 6. And results in sinful entrapment. Now that's the tragedy of Orange County. That's the tragedy of Las Vegas, some of the other places. You get into a world in which you're trapped. Southern California, the property is so expensive, you're overcommitted, so you're on treadmills trying to make it all go. It's a trap. And that leads you to make a lot of bad decisions, harmful desires and eternal judgment. James warns about this in chapter 5. You can dig that out on your own. What are man's purposes for money? Well, to provide for security, that sounds good enough. Establish independence and create power and influence. That's the typical agenda of most of us when we were younger, probably. That's man's purposes for money. Let's contrast man's way with God's way about money. What's the focus? Man's way is power and position, of course. God's way is submission. That's his focus. He wants us to be submit to our king. What about emphasis? Man's emphasis is rights and freedoms, right? God's way is personal responsibility. Ooh, a little different perspective here. What about desire? Man's way is desire, gain for self. God's way is to meet the needs of others. Are you trying to gain assets to meet the needs of others? That's a whole different drive, isn't it? Are you more interested in rights and freedom, or are you willing to step up your personal responsibility? What's your primary concern? If it's man, it's immediate fulfillment. Do it now. That's, what, that's why we're in a debt society, right? God's way is lasting achievement. That's his concern. What's our yearning? Praise of men. What's God's thing? Approval of God is the yearning we should be having. 
Are we seeking man's approval or God's approval? What's our aspiration? To be served. What's God's way? To serve others. You notice that there's just an antithetical perspective here? What's man's need? To push ahead. What's God's way? For patience. Perseverance. What's our striving? To lead men. What's God striving? To follow God. See, the perspective is a little different all the way through. What's our interest? Competition. What's God's way? Cooperation. A little different perspective of everything, not just dollars. Motivation? Ours is self-glorification. God's motivation is God's glory, of course. First, last, and always. What are God's purposes of money? A little different. Provision, direction, fellowship, and demonstration. Four main categories. We'll look at each one a little bit here. Provision, direction, fellowship, and demonstration. Provision, to provide basic needs. Matthew 6, Chairman of the Mount. Establish daily dependence on Him. To deepen our love for the Lord. To develop a spirit of gratefulness. That's what God's purpose of money is. To establish our dependence on Him. To deepen our love for Him. To develop a spirit of great gratefulness. And to teach us to live within our means. Borrowing is a means of reaching around the limitations God has put upon us. And God's purpose of money is to help us enjoy our possessions. Interesting enough, Hebrews 13.5. Each one of these you can study. They'll be in the notes. Another purpose is to confirm. God uses money to confirm his direction of our lives. To build our faith and vision. To determine who is the Lord of our life. To protect us from harmful items. To teach us patience. God put me in the ministry by driving me through a bankruptcy. I had signed an $8 billion, that's with a B, billion dollar joint venture with the Soviet Union. It all collapsed. I went through personal bankruptcy. I had a public company that I owned 51% of that I was trying to, I was stupid enough, aggressive enough to try to protect. God used all of that to get my attention, to redirect my life from the career that I thought I had been pursuing for 30 years, to focus on a hobby that I had for those same 30 years, and, and to do, put me where he wanted me, which I'm convinced he's called me to do what I'm doing. To concentrate on true riches. Third thing, to give to Christians. We want to get, the uh, purpose of money is to, to unite Christians, to demonstrate the mark of a Christian, to initiate spontaneous thanksgiving, and to multiply the potential for giving. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And the last thing is to demonstrate God's power. God will use money to cause Christians to trust him. That's one reason he never gives us more than we need. He gives us what we need, but usually very little. Sometimes a, a check will arrive almost to the penny of exactly the, the need we suddenly have. You've seen that happens so often. You have all stories about that. that. That's God's way of causing us to get, take care of the situation, but in a way that we'll still trust him. He also uses money to mock the false gods of our age. Also uses it to purify our lives and motives and to bring non-Christians into salvation if we do it effectively. And of course, all of this to glorify God. That gives, brings, of course, to the topic of tithing. God has a direct challenge in Malachi 3, verses 8 and 10. And I want you to notice this was instituted before the law. Well, tithing is just Old Testament stuff. No. It occurs in Genesis 14. The law wasn't given until Exodus 20. 
Four reasons for tithing. It acknowledges the Creator's rights. The tenth of all is His. It is an antidote for greed and covetousness. It will change your life if you commit to it. It is a test of our faith. God challenges you. He dares you to put Him to the test. Even Jesus quotes the Scripture that it is not, you're not to test God. There's one exception. God makes one exception where you are to put Him to the test in the tithes and offerings. Malachi 3.10. Very strange for God to put himself in a box, but he does. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so there will not be room enough to receive it. That's his challenge. And of course, it becomes the solution to every financial need. Is tithing. Make God your partner. It's the Old Testament pattern. We can go through all of that if you like. New Testament is confirmed. Christ does not set aside tithes. It's implied in the even so of 1 Corinthians 9. Lay by him in store, 1 Corinthians 16. It alludes to all those other passages. It is more binding on us than the Old Testament saint. You know why? Because our privileges are greater. Whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. So the, the, it's even more binding us than the Old Testament. A tenth of everything is his. What does that mean? You need to be strict. You need to keep books. You need to be careful and be systematic. You want to do all three. You want to be strict, careful, systematic. You want to separate funds upon arrival and set those aside for his work, the tenth of it. And keep records because your giving only comes after you've returned his tenth. Well, I give a lot. Well, wait a minute. What is your tenth and how much have you really offered? Your offering is only beyond that which is beyond the tenth. One of the things that you might be familiar with as a businessman or a portfolio manager is what I call the portfolio management concept. Norm, if you're a steward of somebody else's materials, you operate from period to period, quarter to quarter, year to year, whatever, and at the end of each period, you have a, a report, how well you did. And what you try to do during that period is to arrange your affairs to get the best possible report at the end of the period. You're trying to manage a portfolio. You want it to look as good as you can at the end of the period. You judge the period, your actions of the period by what was the results at the end, right? You do the same thing with giving. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.